12 boys and their soccer coach found alive inside this cave in Thailand. A mid-air disaster. He lost trucks in both ends, he said. The miners trapped half a mile below Another the surface Bill's here. Another player is down. Well, this is the last thing you want to see. How many of you? The water level started to rise. Search and rescue was immediately launched. Over 1,000 people involved in the round-the-clock effort. They're not willing to rest until the last one of them is rescued. More help is on the way. They called your recovery remarkable. Just God, uh, just a blessing, you know. I'm just thankful he gave me a second chance. His recovery is nothing short of miraculous. Everybody got off that plane. For tonight, they are free. Incredible news. We're coming, okay, okay. Many people are coming. Well, hey, welcome to Crosspoint. So glad you guys are with us today. Welcome to everyone online. I know uh, this week a lot of our college students are on spring break. They're getting to be back home or traveling. Some of you, uh, the reason you're online today is because you're holding it down at our Panama City Beach campus. Uh, you got that. Everyone's welcome shirt, but it's airbrushed. It's, uh, it's real nice. So, uh, but no, so glad y'all are with us. Glad that all of you are with us, our campuses as well. And I'm so grateful uh, Pastor Kevin, our team, invited me to be a part of this series. I loved where we started last week. I'm so thankful that I get to kind of take the baton and continue the conversation. Now, uh, some of the footage you saw in that video just a few moments ago happened in Thailand in 2018. There was a, uh, a soccer team, a group of young boys and their coach, and after practice one day, they decided that they were going to go explore some caves in the area, and that wasn't an unusual decision. Uh, people uh, explored these caves all the time. Uh, the problem was that in 2018, the heavy rain system started, or, or the, that time of year started early. In fact, it started that day. And so while they're in the cave, it begins to rain. It begins to rain really, really hard, so much so that water begins to drain off of the mountain. And as it drains off, it begins entering the caves from dozens of different spots. And so first the entrance to the cave begins to fill with water and then the water continues to rise and it continues to push the boys and their coach deeper and deeper into the caves looking for somewhere safe, uh, looking for dry land. And uh, for days, rescuers worked trying to figure out a way that they could get to the boys to find out if they were even still alive. And it was on the ninth day that a pair of divers from the UK, they were volunteers, they were expert cave divers. And on that ninth day, they swam and searched for six hours. They went two and a half miles into the cave and this is what they found. Thank you. Hello, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. How, how many of you? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. We are coming. It's okay. It's okay. Many people are coming. Many, many people. We are the first. Many people come. Uh, it would uh, take a few days uh, for the team to work through how they might rescue the boys. And then it took a few days to execute that rescue. But at the end of it, all 13 of them were successfully rescued from the cave. And it's an incredible story. Uh, so much so, it was turned into a book. It's been turned into at least a, uh, uh, two movies that I'm aware of. Uh, an incredible story. But I haven't really gone into detail about the actual rescue plan. Like what they had to do to get these boys out of the cave. It was a plan that in many ways was simply unthinkable. And I'm going to talk about that more in a few moments. But I thought maybe I'd start with just having a little bit of a conversation about what does it mean to be stuck. Like certainly we all get stuck uh, from time to time. 
Uh, sometimes we're stuck because of a circumstance. You've been traveling, there's some bad weather, all the flights get canceled, you are now in another city trying to figure out how you're gonna get home and you're stuck. Uh, or maybe you've been stuck on the side of the road with a car that broke down. I've told this story before. Um, when I was in college, uh, one night I was driving from Dallas to Oklahoma City. It was very late and I was driving in the middle of nowhere and one of my tires blew out. And so now I'm stuck on the side of the road in the middle of the night, but I'm resourceful. I know how to change a tire. So I put the spare on my car only to find that the spare was also flat. So I was still stuck. It's not a big deal. You know, I'll just drive really slowly and I'll get to a gas station. I find a gas station. Gas station is closed. I am still stuck. I hear voices behind the gas station. I work my way back there only to find a group of people um, partying in a shed. Ten minutes later, I am back on the road, successfully headed home, and it's because, properly motivated, there is nothing more helpful than a drunk Oklahoman. <laughs> that was an interesting time, woo. Uh, someone else who's been there, okay, it's good. Uh, you know, sometimes we're stuck because of a circumstance. Uh, sometimes uh, we're stuck because of a choice. You know, maybe we don't uh, pay the credit card bill. It happens, not that big of a deal. Unless you go to dinner and enjoy a nice meal only to have your card decline and not have any cash in your pocket, and now you're stuck. Or how about you get uh, an email from your boss? and you decide you're gonna forward it to a coworker with a sarcastic comment. The problem is you didn't hit forward, you hit reply. And so now you're a little stuck. Uh, anybody ever uh, forget to renew uh, the tags on your car, your license plate? Anyone ever forget to do that? Sure, we all do from time to time. Uh, one time I drove on expired tags for eight months. I don't recommend it. Because when you get pulled over in that eight month, that eighth month, um, what happened to me at least is the officer invited me to get out of the car. They then towed my car away and left me stuck on the sidewalk. And I said, well, what do I do now? He said, I think I'd recommend you renew your tags. I said, that's going to be quite difficult without the car. But, uh, but it was a choice I made and I was stuck and it was my own choice. So yes, we all get stuck from, from time to time. But there's another version of this question I wanna ask, and it's not the most comfortable question. It's not a conversation that I, I love to have. Uh, I do think it's an important conversation though. And that is what about when we're stuck because of a moral choice that we've made? I'm sure uh, you understand this as a pastor. This is a conversation I have a lot with people. And it typically starts the same every time. I'll say, you know, do you feel like maybe you've gotten a little stuck in this? And it always begins with, well, I mean, I'm not perfect. You know, I certainly make mistakes, but I wouldn't say I'm stuck. Like, I know I could do a better job with some of these things, but no, I'm, I'm not stuck. Now, I know people who are stuck. Like, I've had friends who have messed up big and really gotten themselves stuck. I've had friends get into legal trouble, and man, it sure seemed like they were really stuck. So yes, I understand sometimes, man, you know, we make choices and we get stuck. But me, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I don't think I'm stuck either. And I wonder if maybe that's a little bit naive. Here's, here's why I say that. Um, how many regrettable Saturday nights does it take before we would acknowledge that maybe there's a pattern in our life? Or how easy do the words leave our lips 
before we would acknowledge that, you know what, I don't think I'm stretching the truth, I think I'm manipulating people. Let me say it differently. Identifying an area of growth that we long to see in our lives and then make choices over and over again that actually undermines that growth, isn't that stuck? Or falling short of the moral bar that we've set for ourselves, our moral standards, not the standards someone else has given us, not the standards that religion gives us, but, but standards we would actually choose for ourselves. What about falling short of those standards so many times it's not even entirely clear where those standards are? And isn't that at least a little bit stuck? How about one small lie? which over time becomes a web of lies, impossible to untangle. Like, isn't that stuck? I know asking these questions uh, creates tension. Um, and so let me lighten it up for you a little bit. Let me let you know that you're in really good company. That the Apostle Paul, you read about him in Scripture, uh, he has an encounter with Jesus that changes his entire life. He ends up writing most of the New Testament. He'll give his entire life in service of advancing the message of Jesus. So if we're playing the comparison game of who's stuck and who's not stuck, it seems like Apostle Paul's pretty good. And yet, he gives us one of the most relatable scriptures, one of the most relatable verses throughout the Bible. You see it in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This is the nature of sin. And we can call it anything we want. We can call it a mistake. We can call it a lapse in judgment. We can call it a night that got away from us. We can call it a half-truth. We can call it a bad choice. But what it's really called is sin. And there is no hierarchy of sins. There are not big sins and small sins. There is just the all-encompassing destructive reality of sin and rebellion against God. And the truth of the matter is sometimes we get stuck. But there's good news. That God doesn't long to see us Stuck, he sent Jesus to rescue us. And, um, and no one's disqualified. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God believes that you are more than worthy of rescue. And I know that because you see it again in Scripture, again from the Apostle Paul, this time in 1 Timothy. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to have a conversation about what it means to be stuck. And beyond that, what do we do when the cost of getting unstuck seems high? And to do that, I'm going to look at a story in the book of John. It really is a beautiful story, John chapter 8. It's a story about a woman, and she's stuck. And she's stuck because of a choice, and she's also stuck because of a circumstance. So you can turn in your Bibles to John 8 if you have it. Also, we'll have those uh, verses uh, up in the, on the screen. I think I'm starting around verse 2. It says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. Him, in this case, is talking about Jesus. And he sat down to teach them. Uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
Now, here's why this is a trap. If Jesus says, you know what? I don't think this woman should be stoned. I don't think that's appropriate. Then the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish people are gonna turn on him because he's not willing to enforce the Jewish law. But if Jesus doesn't say that, if he says, yeah, you know what? The law is the law. I think we should stone her. Well, now the Romans are gonna turn on him because you don't get to take the law in your own hands that the Romans are an occupying force. This is why later in scripture, when the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, they had to get Pilate's permission first. They couldn't just crucify him. And so the way these leaders, the reason they're trying to trap Jesus, they don't actually care what he says. They don't really care what he does because the way they see it, either answer is gonna result in him being discredited. Either way, he loses. But here's how you know that this also has nothing to do with justice. Nothing about this story is about justice. If it was about justice, this would be the story about the woman and the man caught in the act of adultery. Because it's just the woman, you can see justice has nothing to do with anyone's motivations. And Jesus sees right through it. He sees what they're trying to do. He sees the evil hearts of these men that would drag this woman in front of the crowd like this. And so they put the question to him, so what do we do? And uh, I love what happens in verse six. It says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I remember growing up in the church, being taught an idea about this story. And the idea was that when Jesus doesn't answer the question, and instead he just kneels down and he starts writing in the dirt, that what he was writing was all the sins of the people in the crowd. And I've always liked that idea. It doesn't say that in the verse, but I've always kind of liked that idea. I like the idea of Jesus that gets a little confrontational sometimes. I like it. Jesus says, really, you're going to come at me? Like, so I've always liked that idea, and it's kind of stuck with me. It was really a a couple years ago. It was actually Pastor Kevin um, shared a, a different way to look at the verse. It's something that I really like a great deal. You remember this woman is caught in the act of adultery. She's not accused. She's not suspected. They say she's caught in the act. And the the verse, it doesn't tell us what she's wearing when she gets dragged in front of the crowd, but it's reason to believe she's not wearing much. And so she gets dragged in front of the crowd. The only thing more obvious than her nakedness is her shame. And so when Jesus kneels down and as he begins to write in the dirt, everyone's eyes go from this woman standing before them, and now they're looking at Jesus, and now they're looking at the words that he's writing in the sand. It is a physical act of taking away her shame. Eyes off her, eyes on me. It's this beautiful picture that fits the character of Jesus. We don't know if that's why he did it, but it fits the character of Jesus. And I think maybe this is an important moment for me to talk a little bit about the difference between guilt and shame. Uh, Because it's natural, if we've made a mistake, if we've wronged someone, it's natural for us to feel a little guilty about it. And guilt has redeeming qualities. Like guilt can motivate you to change. Guilt can motivate you to make a phone call. Guilt can motivate you to right a wrong. But that's not how shame works. There is not a motivating factor to shame. Shame doesn't push you forward. Shame pulls you backwards. If guilt says, you know what, I've done something wrong, shame says, I am something wrong. Shame leads us to withdraw. Shame leads us to hide. Shame leads us, it doesn't lead us to go seek to restore a relationship. What shame tells us is we're not the kind of person that deserves forgiveness. 
And what you need to know is shame is not of God. That if you felt shame over some aspect of your past, that is not God's heart for you. That is not what God has placed on you. That is a tool the enemy uses to hold you captive. God will use conviction and guilt because guilt and conviction leads us to confront our sin. It actually might lead us to do something about it. And so if you've made a mistake and you feel a little guilty about it, great. Use that as a propellant to go and restore something in your life. But if that's not what you feel, if what you feel is shame over a decision or over something that has happened to you, it is time to let that go. Because what shame ends up doing is wrapping around us like a straitjacket, holding us captive. That is not God's heart for you. He longs to rescue you from that. And so if you're feeling shame, if I'm speaking to you right now, don't leave one of our campuses today. Don't quit watching uh, online without talking to a pastor, talking to someone in the chat, talking to a trusted friend, and let them know, it's like, you know what, I think I need to do something about the shame I'm feeling. It is God's heart to rescue you from shame. Um, So let's go back to the story. Um, A woman's been dragged before Uh, Jesus, and they've asked him, how should we punish her? Continues on in verse seven. says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's important to pay attention to the order of what just happened. I think the order matters. The first thing that we see in this story is that Jesus saves her life. The second thing we say is unequivocally and very clearly, Jesus tells her, I don't condemn you. I think maybe this aspect of Jesus' character is something that some of us miss. Because uh, at some point, religion has been presented to us or, let's be honest, modeled for us as something of judgment. A God who is supremely disappointed in us. A disapproving father who doesn't understand why we keep getting stuck. But that's not at all what you see in this passage. And it's because Jesus didn't come to punish us. He didn't come to condemn us. He's not a heavenly prosecutor who leaves the sight of God coming to collect evidence against us that we would be thoroughly punished for our sins. That's not why he came. He came to rescue us. He came to navigate and to deal with the sin that had infected humankind all the way going back to the garden. He came for people who were stuck. And that's good news because at some point, All of us get stuck. The religious leaders of the day, they saw sinners as a social problem that needed to be fixed. Jesus, it was different with Jesus. What he saw was people who were created in the image of his father that needed to be liberated. Came to rescue us. He didn't come to condemn us. Came to rescue us. But you you can't miss the other thing that happens in this story. And you can't skip over it. Yes, he saved her life. Yes, he said, I don't condemn you. But then he also said, go leave your life of sin. And that it happened so quickly at the end of the story, it might lead you to believe that it was an afterthought. 
that maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't all that worried about it. That maybe actually he was pretty casual about it. That maybe Jesus wasn't necessarily all that worried about this woman's sin or for that matter, that worried about our sin. And that's not an accurate conclusion to draw. Uh, you know, in our, uh, our buildings here in Middle Tennessee, most of our buildings, if you look for it, somewhere you'll see on the wall, we've written, nobody's perfect. And I've always liked that because it means different things. I think uh, what that speaks to is empathy. It is this reminder of like, hey, you know what? We all have a past. We all have mistakes. You're, you're still welcome here. It's grace. It is like, hey, just so you know, you're not disqualified. Nobody's perfect. We're glad that you're here. You're in the right place. You know what it really is? It's a reminder to all of us not to be judgmental with each other. Maybe lighten up just a little bit. It is this great reminder. But do you know what it's not? We write, every, uh, nobody's perfect on the wall. You know what it isn't? Permission. Like, I don't know that I think it's a great idea to head over to Lower Broadway, order shots, and go like, ah, eh, nobody's perfect. Like, it's not permission. Grace is not the same thing as indifference. See, Jesus didn't come that we'd be comfortable in our sin. He came to free us from our sin. And it's because he understood that sin has a tendency to get us stuck. That sin tends to separate us from people. Sin tends to separate us from God. That there is a flourishing that we're looking for in our life, a flourishing in our health, in our work, in our relationships, and that when it all comes down to it, sin is contrary to flourishing. And when Jesus says to this woman, go leave your life of sin, it's not like he then thought, okay, great, now she'll never make a mistake again. Like, that's not it at all. It is not this idea that we're gonna live lives of sinless perfection, what it is is saying, you know what, maybe don't make the same choices that got you stuck in the first place. See, his words, they extend, they extend mercy, they extend grace, but they also demand change. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when we're stuck? Well, I've got, I've got two steps, and one's very easy, and one might be a little hard. Uh, the first step is that we repent to God. And repent's not a bad word, it's a great word. I know sometimes repent seems like a scary word or maybe not a great word because sometimes when we see it, it's a person on a street corner with a sign and they just seem so angry. But repent's not a bad word at all, it just means to come home, it means to turn from sin, commit to change. And it's spoken from a God who deeply loves you, not a God who's disappointed in you. And when uh, there's a first time that we repent to God, this is that salvation moment. This is the moment when we would say, you know what, I think I've tried this my own way enough. And so instead, we repent to God, we confess our sins, we receive his forgiveness, we receive salvation for that first time. And now we're able to walk in relationship with God. Now our eternity is secured. That's the first time that we repent to God. It's not the last time we repent to God because it's not the last time that we're gonna mess up. And it's great news that you don't have to pray that salvation prayer every time you mess up. You don't have to keep getting baptized here. That the first time takes, like it works. The reason why we continue to repent to God and confess to God is because it helps us get unstuck. 
There is something about freedom on the other side of confession. Freedom that happens when we're in right relationship with God. When we do that, we receive his forgiveness. We receive his grace. We receive healing at the soul level. And some of that healing is what equips us to do the next difficult thing. Because after we repent to God, we confess to others. And we confess to others because unfortunately, sometimes in the process of us getting stuck, we hurt other people. You know, there is in repentance to God, there is this reconciliation that happens in like our vertical relationship between us and God. But because of the way it impacts people, this is just the nature of sin. There is also reconciliation that we have to pursue horizontally with people. The first step, oftentimes we can do that by ourselves in private. We could even do it secretly. But moving into that next step is a little different because as soon as we begin to pursue reconciliation horizontally, now we're having to uh, address how this has affected other people. And I wish it wasn't that way. Like, I wish when we repented to God and received his forgiveness that he would just go clean up all the messes for us. I wish that he would go before us to the people that are impacted and would just soften their hearts and go, listen, I'm just coming on behalf of Chris. No, he messed up, but we all know he's a good guy. So maybe just hear him out on this. I wish God did this for us, that he would just come and clean up all our messes. Maybe sometimes he does. Oftentimes he doesn't. And it's because I don't know that we're always able to pray our way out of a circumstance that we behaved our way into. Does that make sense? And sometimes that's the reason we stay stuck. Because sometimes getting unstuck with people isn't so simple. Because to... Acknowledge the sin that we've been living with costs us something. To end the lies and to tell the truth costs us something. Like I have these conversations with people and they are repentant to God and they really want to change. But then we get to this point and they go, Chris, if I tell my spouse everything that's been going on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up my family. You know, if I tell my friends that I've relapsed again, it'll be the last straw. They'll write me off. You know, if my boss, my business partner, my coworkers, if they knew what's been going on, it would ruin everything. I could never show my face here again. What people tell me is I desperately want to be unstuck, but it just costs so much. And so we fool ourselves into thinking in that moment that maybe we'd just be safer if we stayed in the cave. That brings me back uh, to the story I was telling earlier about the, uh, the cave rescue in Thailand. I told you it took nine days to find the soccer team um, there in the caves. And um, after they found them, the rescuers began to work on a plan. Okay, how do we get them out of there? And what became very clear very quickly is that there was no other way in or out of the caves. And so to get them out of the caves, they'd have to bring them out the same way they got in, which means that these uh, volunteer uh, cave divers would have to bring in oxygen tanks and wetsuits and that the boys would have to dive their way out. The problem was these boys don't know how to dive let alone in these kinds of conditions, in murky water and tight spaces. 
as the, uh, as the rescuers talked about it. They just acknowledged there is a very high likelihood that in the process of this, that the rescue would probably take about three hours to get out of the caves. That over the course of three hours, that at some point, these boys would panic, those reflexes would kick in, and when they did, there would be nowhere to go, there'd be no escape, and so that they would drown. Uh, in fact, um, a member of the, the Thai Navy SEALs uh, were helping with the rescue, and one of the Navy SEALs had already drowned as part of the rescue process, and they, just, they were just honest about it. If a Navy SEAL can't do it, there is no way these boys are going to be able to swim out. And so they came up with a new plan, a plan that in many ways was unthinkable. Uh, the plan was that one at a time, they would sedate the boys. And then fully unconscious, they would put them in the diving gear and the oxygen mask. And then they would bind their arms together. And then they would bind their legs together. And then fully unconscious, they would submerge them and then move them through the passages, through the caves, as though they were packages. And the only reason that this was even plausible was because one of the volunteer divers happened to be an anesthesiologist in his professional life. His name's Dr. Richard Harris. His friends call him Harry. And this is Harry talking about the rescue plan. To get to the rescue itself, you were in Australia and you got a call from a friend saying, could we sedate these kids and get them out? What did you say? Yeah, that was Rick Stanton, one of the British divers who'd been there for nearly a week at that stage. And uh, my, my response was very clear, very emphatic. It's absolutely impossible. Don't even consider it. You know, how can you possibly render someone unconscious and then immerse them for what would be three hours out through this coffee-coloured water? It's just uh, inconceivable. But I said, look, we're still happy to come and give you a hand, but you better come up with a better plan than that, that basically. What changed your mind? Uh, a process of elimination, realising that there was no alternative. We went through all the other options one by one and they all slowly fell away, leaving us with this idea that basically we either leave these children in the cave to die a very protracted and unpleasant death or we give this a try. And I had zero confidence, Neil, that it was going to work. He says later in that interview, he acknowledged that he thought there was a very good chance at least some of the boys would die in the course of rescue and that there was a chance they all would. And the interviewer asked him, he said, well, what condition were the boys in when you found them on that ninth day? And Harry said, actually, they were in remarkably good condition, that given the environment they were in and as long as they had been in there, that they were actually pretty healthy, that two of the boys had the beginnings of a respiratory infection. And he said, in that environment, that was going to become a problem quickly. But he said, you know, by and large, at that moment, they were healthy. And then the interviewer asked the right question. He said, well, how could you move forward with a plan with 13 healthy human souls that even you thought would likely result in the death of some and maybe all of them. Dr. Harris thought about it for a moment. And he said, well, to leave them in the cave just means they die slowly. I wonder if maybe the truth, well, that's the truth for us too. That it sounds maybe a little extreme, but if you think about it a little bit, a relationship starved 
of truth and vulnerability slowly dies. Our character, compromised again and again, slowly dies. But there's this sense that to get unstuck would just cost us so much. We fool ourselves into thinking that we might actually just be safer if we stayed in the cave, but that's not the case. And that's why God came to rescue us. It's why he sent his son from heaven. It's why he took the form of a man and he lived a sinless and perfect life. It's why he went all the way to the cross and in doing so sacrificed his very life for our sins, for our mistakes, to get us unstuck. And when he rose from the dead, the dead, he, he restored our connection to God. He secured our eternity for us. He gave us a hope and a future. He did it out of his great love for us. Hear me when I say this, especially if it's hard to believe it. He did this because he loves you so much. He did it to give you a hope and a future. He did it to rescue us. In a moment, I'm gonna pray and close out our time together. In that prayer, I'm gonna give an opportunity. Maybe there's some of you here in this room or watching with us at our campuses or online and you've never made that decision, you've never prayed that prayer before, that your presence uh, as part of this service is, is curiosity or maybe life has just hit a place where you don't know us to turn. If, if you'd like to pray that prayer to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm gonna walk you through that, it's so simple. But I wonder if there's not another opportunity for much more of us and at some point for all of us. And it's not just to repent to God, but maybe the opportunity is it's time to confess to someone else that the nature of hiding has led us to live stuck. And the opportunity is to get unstuck. The problem is oftentimes it's easy to confess to God and not so easy to others. The best person for you to confess to is the person who's been affected by your mistake. But if you're not ready for that, that's okay. Maybe instead you choose to confess to a trusted friend, maybe someone you came to church with. But if you're not ready for that either, that's okay too. We're gonna invite across all of our campus for some of our prayer team to come up and these people are safe. They're not gonna judge you and they're not going to gossip about you. And if there is freedom found in you even saying the words and confessing what's been holding you back, we're gonna give you that opportunity as we dismiss today. But uh, why don't y'all pray with me? Uh, Jesus, I come to you now and I, uh, I pray first for the person uh, for whom this is all brand new to, who are discovering your character and your story, maybe for the first time, or maybe it's just connecting to their story in a new way because being stuck makes us much more open. And so if you're someone here and you'd like to receive Jesus for the first time, it's such a simple prayer. Uh, you don't have to fix everything first. You don't have to fix everything about your life. You notice that Jesus said, I don't condemn you before he said, deal with the sin. Jesus doesn't condemn you. If you wanna be free from that, just pray this with me. Just say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. I ask what you did on the cross be applied to my sin and my shame. I wanna walk with you, know you, and I wanna be free. Just a prayer that simple begins you on a journey of faith. 
begins that process of God doing that healing work inside of you. But I recognize that there is a step for all of us. And maybe that step isn't today, but it'll happen at some point. When sin does get us a little stuck and we find ourselves in a place where we choose whether we hide or whether we confess, I just pray for courage this week. That we'd have the courage to address the areas where we've gotten stuck, that we would pursue healing in our relationships, healing in the ways and the things that have been broken around us, that on the other side of confession and repentance, we'd find stories of rescue, stories of healing, that we would walk lighter and with more confidence, restored to you, God, and restored to each other. And then from a place of freedom, we would then embrace the role that we play in your rescue as we would seek to help rescue other peoples who are lost. God, would you let us play a part in that? Thank you for rescuing us. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue this conversation next week. I hope you'll be back with us. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.